morning. It's good to be here today. That's a cool graphic you guys have. Um, I am a friend of Chris Harrison's. My name is Adam Bonus. I am the adult discipleship pastor at Reliance Fellowship over in West Richland um, in Tri-Cities. And um, I've known Chris and his family for, oh, probably almost 10 years now, nine or 10 years. Um, when uh, Chris was at Dallas Theological Seminary, um, I was also down there. And um, my kids and his kids played a lot together through the summers and um, had a great time together. And so um, I've known them for quite a while. Um, a little bit about me. I'm married. My um, wife, Kim, Kim and I, have been married for 18 years, which is hard to believe. And um, we have three kiddos. And I guess it's easy to believe that we've been married 18 years when I talk about my kids. But um, we have three kiddos. My oldest, Emily, um, is 17 and getting ready to graduate high school. Um, my son, Nathan, is 15, and I'll be taking him driving this afternoon. He has his permit, so stay off the roads in West Richland. And um, my daughter, Abby, is 11, and um, yeah, they're cool kids. And my, um, Emily and Nathan have actually gotten to go on a couple youth retreats with, um, with this church. They've, they've come out and gone with um, Calla and Elliot and, and the, the rest of the gang there. So um, they've really been blessed by that. Um, I've been a believer most of my life, um, grew up in church, um, really got saved and got serious about the Lord when I was about 10 years old. And I had a really good youth pastor. And uh, he had gotten saved in the Navy, um, got involved with the Navigators. And if you know anything about the Navigators, they're big on, on Bible memory um, so lots of scripture memory, and then on just reading and studying the Word. And so um, that was kind of built into my growth as a kid, um, and, and really was a pretty important value. And so um, I, I memorized a lot of scripture when I was younger, but um, one that I memorized that has stuck with me is Jeremiah 17.9. I think it has a lot to do with what we're going to talk about this morning. It says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. The heart is deceitful above all things. And, and I've, you know, lived some life since then. And I've probably known that scripture for 25 years or maybe 30 years. I don't know how long I've known that one. But um, I have seen that reaffirmed in my life over and over and over, um, both in my own and in others. Um, you see that in the scriptures, this idea that the heart is deceitful. And sometimes it's really obvious. You know, you have stories like Jacob and Esau. Jacob is the trickster um, lies to his dad. He's willing to lie, cheat, and steal to get the blessing of God. Um, but then you also see sometimes where it's a little more subtle, right? So like David, King David, man after God's own heart. And yet he gives in and, and commits this sin with Bathsheba and, and kills her husband. And, and in the midst of that, you know, it doesn't tell us that David deceived himself. And yet somewhere along the way, he got the idea that this was a good idea, that he should do this, or that it was somehow worth it to do this. Um, sometimes the self-deception, this kind of deceiving ourselves, uh, is really tragic. Um, David, of course, is an example. Another example is if you look at the book of Judges. Um, in Judges, you have this, this just train wreck where you have the people of God they don't have a king over them, and so everyone is doing what is right in his own eyes. And so, what that sounds right. Doesn't that sound good? Everybody's doing the right thing in their own eyes, but they are deceiving themselves and leading themselves in the wrong direction. And so you have just this train wreck, a whole scenario or a series of stories that are bad news. 
And um, it ends with a civil war where they just about wipe out the entire tribe of Benjamin. And yet they're doing what's right in their own eyes. And so self-deception, man, it shows up throughout the Bible. We see it in, in life, right? Um, I, I have a um, friend of mine, Andy. He's in my small group. And uh, we were um, just talking the other night, and he was just kind of lamenting over the number of high-profile Christian leaders that have fallen in recent years. So guys like um, Bill Hybels and Mark Driscoll and, and James McDonald and just a, a bunch of guys that... Um, we're doing good work for the Lord, um, really doing some great ministry, and yet somewhere along the way, um, they fell into sin, and, and they convinced themselves that that, that was okay, um, and even defended themselves at times. So, I mean, we, we see just examples of, of people deceiving themselves, but it's not just out there, right? I mean, it's easy to point the finger, and yeah, that guy did it, um, but it's here too, Right? I think we all have this propensity to cover up and excuse and make exceptions for our own sin. Um, I, I, so I'm a pastor, and one of the things I get to do on a, on a semi-regular basis is, is help people who are struggling in their marriages. And almost inevitably, it, it's not my fault, it's that other person. Right? It's my spouse's fault, not mine. And so the, the hardest thing, I think, for most of us is, is just taking a good, hard look in the mirror and seeing, okay, the sin isn't just out there, it's right here, right? I've, I have this, this propensity towards kind of deceiving myself. And so um, even the, the crazy thing about this is that even when we think we're doing the right thing, sometimes our motivations are sinful. So I understand last week uh, Chris preached on Leviticus 19 where it says that we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. And um, what I want to talk about this week is the, the motivation behind that, right? What does what the heart look like that is attempting to love our neighbor as ourselves? And, and this isn't really about our messy neighbors. <laughs> this is really about our messy selves, right? So sometimes in our own hearts, as we attempt to do a good thing, um, yeah, we need to check our motivations because sometimes there, there's some sin that creeps in there. So we're going to be looking at Matthew 19. Uh, Matthew chapter 19, if you want to read along, it's verses 16 through 30. It's the story of the rich young man. Um, we find out in, in Luke's gospel he's a ruler. So this is often called the rich young ruler. So Matthew 19, verse 16, it says, Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter eternal life, obey the commandments. Which ones? The man required, inquired. Jesus replied, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man 
to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Peter answered him, We've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And many who are last will be first. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word that uh, keeps us on track, that keeps us from going astray. Thank you for how you have uh, given us your word as a testimony um, of your greatness and your goodness through the ages and also as a record of of your teaching, Jesus. And God, I pray this morning that um, we would be faithful to your word, Lord, that we would rightly understand it and apply it to our own lives and um, not just understand it, but really live it out, Lord. Um, Help us to see what you're calling us to here today. And God, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, as we're looking at this passage, what I want to do is I just want to make a few observations and then we're going to dive a little deeper into it, but um, just a few observations first. Um, The first thing you see here is that that Jesus, or this man calls Jesus teacher. And that's a little unusual in Matthew's gospel. So it happens five times. In the other four instances, Jesus ends up confronting this person or rebuking that person for their lack of faith and their failure to, failure to understand who he is. And so when, when this man calls Jesus teacher, he doesn't seem to really understand who exactly Jesus is. Um, he, he doesn't understand. He has respect for Jesus. He looks to him for the answers to this, this major question that he's dealing with. And yet, ultimately, he fails to understand the importance of following Jesus himself. And so, you, you've got this guy. He starts off. He calls him teacher. And then he asks this question. It's pretty straightforward. What good thing must I do to get eternal life? Pretty straightforward question. Question that we might ask. But it's interesting what Jesus how Jesus responds, right? The first thing he says is there is only one who is good. And what what Jesus is doing here is he's confronting the the kind of loose way that we use language, right? So this man says, what good thing must I do? Jesus says, there's only one who's good. God is good, right? There is an ultimate standard for goodness, and it's God. And so we we tend to do this. we're, We're pretty loose in the way we talk, and so we might say, you know, yeah, my, my neighbor, he's a really good guy. You know, maybe you've heard the, the news story where it's like this person's committed some horrible crime and they, they interview the neighbor, right? And the neighbor says, oh yeah, he's, I knew that guy. I can't believe he did that. He's such a good guy. And yet he committed this terrible crime, right? So I, we use this language. And, and what do we mean when we say that someone is a good guy? Do we mean that that person is morally upright in every single way? Do we mean that everything they do is for the good of others and the glory of God? Or do we mean something more like, yeah, I mean, that guy, he's not a jerk, and I, 
I'm kind of okay hanging out with him, right? Is that what we mean when we say he's a good guy? And so I think what Jesus is doing here is he's confronting him. He's saying, okay, let's be careful with the way we use words, right? Because you have lowered the standard instead of using God's standard for what is good. And so then Jesus gives him God's standard for what is good, right? He points back to the Ten Commandments. And he lists for him five of the Ten Commandments. And what's interesting is the ones he picks... Jesus picks five out of the ten, and all the ones he picks are about loving your neighbor. And they're all ones that you can see pretty openly, outwardly, what he's, whether you're doing it or not, right? He doesn't, he doesn't pick, interestingly, do not covet. That one's a little harder to measure, right? But he picks things that are, are pretty easy to measure, and then he concludes by quoting Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself, Right? And so Jesus is driving home this point, you you know, if you want to measure goodness, here's how you measure goodness, right? You do it by God's standard, by his commandments. And without missing a beat, this man replies immediately and says, all these I have kept, right? So within just moments, Jesus says, there is only one who is good. And this man says, me too, <laughs> essentially. Yeah, I'm, I'm good too. I, I got that. I did that stuff. All that stuff you just said, I did that. Um, one last observation I'll make here before we kind of dive into some of the inner workings of where this guy's at. Um, one last observation is, is he says, what do I still lack? And therefore, just, just for a moment, there's, there seems to be this glimpse of self-awareness. He understands deep down that that maybe he hasn't done everything he needs to yet. Maybe there is something more. So I started a, a few minutes ago here um, talking about Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? And what I want to talk about is how this, this particular guy, he's going to be our case study this morning, how he had deceived himself in the midst of this. And we're going to talk about three things that this guy was apparently telling himself. And... Um, we're going to wrestle through that. We're going to see how he has, has really been uh, misguided in his approach to living out this command. And then we're going to look at a better way. Um, so let's take a look at some of the things this guy's telling himself. The first thing that he's apparently telling himself is, I'm a good person. Look at all that I've done. Right? Maybe you've been tempted with this. But Jesus isn't at all impressed. So before this guy ever has an opportunity to brag about his accomplishments, Jesus immediately points out, no, 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 there's only one who is good, and that is God. Uh, if we're going to put a label on this guy at this point, we would, we would call this self-righteous pride, right? So the motivation doesn't seem to be truly loving others and helping the neighbor and, and doing as much as he can for others. The goal seems to be feeling better about himself, Right? He's pretty convinced he's a good person, pretty convinced he can live up fully to God's standards. And throughout Jesus' ministry, man, he confronts this attitude over and over and over. You see it a lot with the Pharisees, but every time Jesus encounters this, he confronts it. So in Mark chapter 2, he says, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, if you think you're healthy, you're not going to go to the doctor, right? If you don't realize you're lost, you're not going to seek to be found. And so here you have Jesus confronting kind of that self-righteous pride that keeps us, could keep us from seeing our need before God. 
Um, John 9, 39 through 41, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees says, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. And those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We're not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, We see, your sin remains. So according to Jesus, the problem for the Pharisees wasn't just spiritual blindness. The problem was that they claimed to have true sight. They claimed to not have sin, right? They, they thought they were in good shape. And Jesus says, if you would just admit you need help, you'd be so much better off, right? You'd be in such a better place. Um, or Matthew 23, verse 25 to 28, Jesus, again speaking to the Pharisees, says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee! First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. So again, it's the same point that self-righteousness, man, it's just skin deep. I mean, they look good from the outside, but Jesus knows the heart. He knows that inwardly there's a problem here. And they'd be so much better off if they would just admit the problem. So this guy, he obviously doesn't see his need here. Um, which kind of brings us to the second thing, which is to say, he was saying, my good deeds outweigh my shortcomings. And here's what I mean by this. This guy had great wealth, he was very rich, and yet he was unwilling to sell it all and give to the poor. Now, probably for most of us, we would be reluctant to sell everything we had and give it to the poor, right? Is that fair to say? Um, but for this guy, he was claiming to have already fulfilled the command to love his neighbor as himself. If he really did love his neighbor to the same extent, just as much as he cared about himself, he would have been... I think, far more willing to share his great wealth with those in need. But he didn't see the inconsistency here. And so in his mind, he, he probably admits some minimum requirement. Oh yeah, I, I did something for my neighbor one time. I, you know, I loved my neighbor a little bit. And uh, what he wasn't doing was really living out this command, loving his neighbor to the same extent that he loved himself. And so when Jesus lists the commandments here, this guy is looking at it and he, he's saying, yeah, I'm good enough. Yeah, I've, I've, more or less I've met that expectation. And you might call this self-justification. You might call it rationalizing. There's all sorts of names we could call this. Um, I, I heard a story a while back. Um, a, a youth pastor was confessing a sin that he had been hiding for quite a while. He was a pretty successful youth pastor and working pretty hard at his job and, and serving the youth and um, he had secretly had a problem with pornography. And he would work hard and he would do lots of great things, but then um, secretly when he was by himself, he would rationalize that it was okay for him to, to look at these images. Um, basically, he was saying to himself, my good deeds outweigh my bad ones. Jesus tells this man that only God is good. Every one of us comes up short. None of us can claim that our good deeds outweigh our bad ones. And yet, aren't we tempted to do that? Right? Aren't, aren't we tempted to kind of put in place some kind of like a sliding scale for goodness? Right? So as soon as you start to do something good, instead of comparing yourself to God who alone is truly holy and righteous, we tend to compare ourselves to like the other guy, the, the 
your friend or your neighbor or that other person that's sitting here, right? And so you start to do something good and you don't look to God as the ultimate standard. You say, yeah, compared to that guy, I'm pretty good, right? I guess I'm doing, I guess I'm doing all right. And so that's what this guy's doing. He, he's got this sliding scale of righteousness. He's saying his good deeds are better than his bad ones. But there's one more thing this guy's saying to himself. He says, I feel like I'm missing something, but I can fix it. Okay, so when Jesus, asks, when, when Jesus gives him these commands, he says, I've done all these things. What do I still lack? What do I still lack? And so there is this glimmer of hope, right? He understands he's missing something. And maybe you, you think, maybe this guy sees it. Maybe he sees his need for a savior. But all, of, all that's against the backdrop of what he said earlier. What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? So there's this self-deception here. This man thinks he can be his own savior. He thinks he can, can earn eternal life and impress people and impress God and, and all through his own effort. Now here's, here's why I think this is relevant for us. So you're talking about this idea of, of loving your neighbor and how messy that can be. Um, these are the same kinds of things that can creep into our own thinking when we set out to do a good thing and love our neighbor. Our hearts can be deceitful, and uh, when you start talking about your inner motivations, right, things can get muddy, it can get messy. And it's really all about how we tend to focus on ourselves. So, like, you guys have probably done this, right? So, um, somebody in your church um, has... Uh, Maybe they have a baby, or maybe someone in your church is sick, and you guys take a meal to that person, right? Do you guys do that kind of a ministry where you take a meal to someone in need? So you can prepare the meal, and you can drive across town, take them the meal, and then the whole way home be thinking about what a good job you did and what a good person you are, right? Or, or maybe you serve in kids' ministry, and you're kind of secretly looking down on everyone else who doesn't serve in kids' ministry. Why aren't those people doing this too? right? For those of us who are in full-time ministry, man, this can be a trap. This can be a thing that we fall into of, you know, I could get up here this morning, hopefully do a good job, and then uh, leave thinking, man, I'm something special, <laughs> or something like that, you know. It could be, it's really these subtle traps where we start focusing on ourselves instead of truly loving our neighbor, right? It's not about that other person anymore. It's about, it's about me, which is wrong, and it's self-centered, and it's sinful, and so if you consider where, where that left this rich young man, he had so much going for him. Right? He's a young guy, he's got his whole life ahead of him, he's wealthy, he's a ruler, he seems to be living for the Lord, and yet his self-righteous pride leaves him spiritually bankrupt before God. And that's what I want to point out is this guy, ultimately he accomplished nothing to impress God. Right? Nothing he did, all his efforts, his hard work, it all amounted to nothing. Um, Paul, right? later Paul in his ministry, he's going to say it this way. He's, he's going to say, as a Pharisee, all that stuff I had done, all the, the stuff I had accomplished living, and living out the law and all of that, he says it was all loss to me compared to the excellence of knowing and following Jesus. Right? Those things were rubbish. Or consider what Isaiah says. He says um, in Isaiah 64, 6, All of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And so there, there's this tendency, you know, we, we come to a command like Leviticus 19, 
says, love your neighbor as yourself. And if we approach that with kind of a self-righteous pride or a self-sufficiency that kind of puffs me up, man, we miss the point of truly loving our neighbor. And, and here's what's worse for this, this rich young man. Not only does he not love his neighbor well, he doesn't love himself well, right? The command is love your neighbor as yourself, right? He's not even ultimately accomplishing what's best for himself, right? So what he should have done was taken Jesus up on his offer. It was an amazing offer Jesus was giving him. So we've seen a few ways that, that this young man unfortunately got it wrong, and it's really tragic, but what I want to do is I want to consider the better way that Jesus offered him, right? What is the better way that Jesus was offering? And because really, this is what Jesus is calling all of us to do, okay? So this particular story falls at a particular place in Matthew on purpose. The way Matthew puts these stories together, there's, there's a reason to it. And so right before this story of the rich young man, we have a contrast here with this story, Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 through 15, of these little children that were brought to Jesus. So let me just read this for us. It says, Then little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And when he placed his hands on them, he went on from there. So you have this rich young man who comes seemingly with, with all the resources in the world and everything going for him, and he wants to enter eternal life, and Jesus gives him what seems to be an impossible request, right? At least for, from his perspective, he can't do it. And then right before that, Jesus had just been talking to these little kids who have nothing to offer, nothing to bring to Jesus. And Jesus says that uh, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. So I, I just want to kind of walk through here um, and, and look at three different things that Jesus is calling us to do. Um, the first thing, kind of contrasting these two stories, the first thing that Jesus is calling us to do is to worship God above all else. So all the commands that Jesus listed for the rich young man related to loving your neighbor, right? But when Jesus asked him to sell his possessions, to give up all those things he had to offer, the spotlight is shifted there, right? So no longer is Jesus talking about just loving your neighbor as yourself, but he's also brought it over to that command where you shall have no other gods before me. And so it was clear that this young man did not have, had not put God in that place of preeminence in his life. Right? God wasn't revered and worshipped and pursued above all else. And that's why Jesus tells him to sell his possessions. Right? It's interesting. So Jesus doesn't give this command to anyone else in the Gospels. Right? Plenty of other people came to Jesus. This is the only man that Jesus says, go sell all your possessions and then follow me. And the reason is, Jesus recognized that this man's possessions had control of him. Right? It was an idol in his life. And so Jesus cuts right to the heart of the matter and says, okay, let's deal with this first. You've got to get rid of your possessions and then follow me. And just as a side note, I think it's important just to, to mention, it is possible to be rich and to follow Jesus. Right? There, there are other examples of that in the, in the Gospels and the Scriptures. Um, 
Joseph of Arimathea. He's the one who provided a burial place for Jesus after he was crucified. And at the end of Matthew's gospel, we find out about Joseph of Arimathea, that he was rich and he was a disciple, right? So you can be both. That is possible. Um, the real issue is what are you going to do with your wealth, right? When the, when the need arises, when the time comes, are you willing to give it up to serve Jesus' greater uh, commands and, and greater interests, right? And so Joseph of Arimathea, he, he lends Jesus a cave for a burial place for a short time. <laughs> um, this, this rich young man, he was not willing to part with his wealth. Um, just incidentally, I think that's one of the real, really great reasons why it's important for us to give money to church, right? Beyond just the, the needs of the church, right? It's really good for us as Christians to be in the habit of giving away our wealth so that those things don't have control of our hearts, right? So the first thing Jesus is calling to is just worship God above all else. The second thing that he calls us to is to pursue this greater reward. So don't settle for the empty trinkets of the world. Recognize that there's true riches only in him. So this, this rich young man, he goes away sad because he had great wealth. And really, he's going away empty-handed. Jesus says, go sell all your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Peter actually picks up on this just a few verses later. Um, Peter says, always the quick one to jump in there and speak, right? <laughs> he says, we've left everything to follow you. What do we get? What's in it for us, right? And Jesus could have kind of confronted his uh, greed there, that it kind of comes across that way, but he doesn't. Jesus instead says, there will be far greater reward for you, Peter, than anything that you and the other disciples have given up. In other words, it's no sacrifice to follow Jesus. So instead of feeling bad about yourself, that you had to spend all that time and money to, to serve others, recognize you're the one getting the good end of the deal out of this, right? You are benefiting. You will be rewarded, Jesus says, far beyond anything you had to lose. Look at what he says. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and also eternal life. You get that out of the deal too. So there's so much more that is offered to us when we choose to give up something in this life to serve him. Here's how Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, he says, Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Now from Paul, when Paul says that, that, that means something, it carries some weight, right? Because Paul's light and momentary troubles included things like being shipwrecked and stoned and beaten and, and all those things that he dealt with, right? But they were light, they were momentary troubles compared to what he knew lay in store for following Jesus. So, so the third thing that, that really we're, we're being called to do here is to come to Jesus humbly by faith. And so that's really where it fits in with this story right before, the little children who come to Jesus. So Jesus says the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. What was so special about these children? Why does Jesus elsewhere say that you have to be like a child if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, I think it's because these kids, when they came to Jesus, they didn't have anything to offer him, right? They came humbly, they came with faith, 
which is really the opposite of what we see right after that with the rich young man, right? The rich young man comes with a fair amount of pride, with all this stuff he has to offer. And so he, he had missed the point that these, these little kids had, had seen. So let's get back to that original question that this, this man asks. Very first thing he says, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And you get the answer to that at the end of what Jesus says. Because Jesus says, come, follow me. What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Come, follow me. The story of the rich man is is really a tragedy. Uh, This man was offered nothing less than eternal life and treasure in heaven and an opportunity to follow Jesus. That's amazing. And instead, he went away empty-handed. Now, here's the thing I want to point out. Pretty cool. Um, This morning, all of those things are being offered to us, right? So to us, we are being offered eternal life and treasure in heaven and an opportunity to follow Jesus. Now, I'm I'm the guest speaker here. I don't know you guys very well. I've met a few of you. But um, I don't know if you guys have... I don't know everybody in this room. I don't know who has made a conscious, intentional decision to follow Jesus and who hasn't. And so I would just challenge you, like if you have not really responded to Christ and what he offers and, and been willing to make him your greatest treasure in life, I would just challenge you to respond to the gospel, right? In the gospel, it's pretty simple, straightforward message. Essentially, I'm a sinner, <laughs> you're a sinner. I think that's one of the, the few things in life that you can really verifiably prove, right? Um, We're all sinners. There is brokenness in the world. There are problems in the world, and it's us. Um, We are sinful people. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the consequence of that is separation from God and ultimately death. But God demonstrates his own love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? Jesus made a way to be restored to God, and that is good news, And if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, Romans 10.9. And so if you haven't made that decision to really make Christ your Lord and to follow him, man, I would challenge you today to do that. Um, But I'm guessing a lot of you guys have been in church for a long time and you have made that decision. So what does it look like? How does this relate to loving your neighbor as yourself? And I think it's so closely tied here. As Christians, we know that God looks at the heart, right? And so if we're to love our neighbor, it has to begin with humility. It has to begin not with this self-righteous pride of look at at these great things I'm doing, look how cool I am, but it has to begin with a humility that's really looking to that other person's needs above your own, right? That really cares about that other person. But man, that's hard for us, isn't it? And I think the only way we can truly give ourselves to others, the, w- the only way we can truly serve selflessly and, and seek the benefit of the other person is if we've experienced that same kind of love ourselves, right? And so 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us, right? Isn't that awesome? We love because he first loved us. And so that has to be really the root, the, the, the grounding of how we serve others. And so you guys are going through this series, Messy, talking about loving your neighbor. 
And I think it's just a really good reminder before you go any further in this series to just remind yourself, like, why is it that we show love to our neighbor? Why is it that we are so interested in doing that? Well, it's because we have experienced that love ourselves. Jesus Christ did that for us. And so if he could serve us, um, not only is he an example for us, but he is the source of life. He is the power behind everything that we do. We, we ought to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Right? Will you pray with me? Father, I just want to thank you for the incredible love that you've shown to us through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray this morning that if there are any who have not put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, Lord, that you would do a great work in their heart today and draw them to yourself. Father, for those who have, Lord, give us a deeper, growing, maturing appreciation of this love that you have had for us. Help us to understand, to really appreciate what grace looks like. Help us to extend that to others. Help us to love even those who seem to be unlovable. Help us to really live out the kind of love that you showed to us. God, you gave us a perfect love in Jesus Christ, and I pray that that would be the same kind of love that we extend to others. Um, thank you, Lord, for the story that is offered here, and Lord, I pray that none of us would make the tragic choice of walking away, clinging to the treasures of this world instead of um, clinging to you, Jesus. Help us to take that invitation and to follow you and to love our neighbor as you've called us to. Lord, we love you, and we just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.